Welcome to the Reunion Church Podcast. We're a community following Jesus, seeking the good of our city. We hope today's teaching is both challenging and encouraging. If we could be a resource to you on your spiritual journey, don't hesitate to reach out via our website at reunionnyc.com. Okay, so we're reading from John chapter 11, verses 20 through 37. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the light. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? This is the word of the Lord. Be to God. Good morning, everyone. Brendan and Russell do that much more gracefully. being able to put this down. I gotta adjust myself, y'all, I'm sorry. I also know that I'm not in the middle, but Lizzie, aka TikTok queen, photographer extraordinaire, told me that this is where my lighting is better. So I'm not trying to give anybody my back. Virtual community, welcome. I will be looking at you occasionally, but lighting. Um, Uh, My name is Emily. I'm very, very happy to be here. And before I start, I do want us to take a collective breath in and out. One, because, you know, the nerves calming that down. But we've been on a journey um, these couple of weeks. um, And the therapist in me wants to provide some predictability for us all today. Um, As a church and a community group, for those of us who are participating in those, we've been focusing on this lovely book that reads into our souls a little bit too much. Um, And we have covered some topics that are insane. Um, I came into church today. Brandon was the first person I saw, and I was like, I got to preach on grief and loss today. Um, And he was... uh, didn't have an easier challenge than I did. He had to preach about family and how families have, I don't even, I didn't want to say mess this up, but how families, <laughs> families can be painful. Um, so yeah, I, I want us to get into this topic that I know sounds quite heavy, um, but I will promise you all that we are ending in a place of hope. 
um, not like the last verse that we just read. Um, but before that, I did want to say that I am a community group leader here at Reunion, along with the lovely Rachel. We lead our Sunday community group, which is the best community group. Um, and something that we have been very intentional about is creating a space where people can be seen and can be known. And that's very easy in the context of an icebreaker question. What's your favorite ice cream flavor? Who would you invite if you were a late night talk show host? What is your number on the Enneagram? I love being seen and known in those ways. But when I am then asked to identify a moment when I felt farthest from God, unpack harmful messages from my family of origin, it's hard. It's very difficult to be transparent and vulnerable. Um, it's human nature to want to hide, avoid, or even minimize our experiences. So I want to acknowledge that as a congregation, we have been challenged and pushed out of our comfort zones to look into parts of our hearts that are hidden for a reason, that they're untouched because we don't want to look at them. Um, and there are moments when I have to remind myself that I'm not in therapy. It's okay to not share. Um, or even tell myself, I should probably tell this to my therapist uh, after I get out of group today. And while today's topic, grief and loss, is not an exception to what we've been exploring these past couple of weeks, I do want to invite us today, not into the therapist chair, uh, but instead invite us into the presence of the omnipotent and omniscient God. What's the difference? God already sees and already knows you. We don't have to be afraid that we'll be shamed today by the secrets that we hide. We don't have to be anxious that we're oversharing when we're talking to God about our pain. And we don't have to worry that we're burdening him with the mess that's going on in our lives. And sometimes I have to remind this to myself that God is not all-knowing so that he can wag his finger at me, but so that he can open up his arms and I can run to him without explaining why I look like such a hot mess right now. Yeah. And for those of us who don't feel like we have that relationship with God right now, for whatever reason, I just want to invite you into this lovely truth and that that is still God's nature. That is still God's response to you. There is hope not the light at the end of the tunnel type of hope, but it's a hope that weeps with you and is moved by your pain. So let's pray. God, I thank you. I thank you for deep breaths that help us become centered into topics as heavy as grief and loss. I thank you for your Holy Spirit. Take control today, Lord. I trust that as we may hit sore spots in our hearts and our souls, Lord. I trust that you are in the driver's seat, God, and you will not take us to a destination that is bleak, that is dark, that is consumed with hopelessness, but instead you long to give us peace. You long to sit with us, God, until we feel ready to be filled with hope again. In Jesus' name I pray. So here in John 11, um, we have a text where we see different people wrestling with grief and loss, um, that of Lazarus. He has just died. But before we get into what the Bible says about grief, it is important to acknowledge the relationship that our culture has with grief. So there are some pictures that I, um, yeah, there we go. 
some pictures that I have up here. Um, it's a piece called Dark Elegy by Sousa Ellen Lowenstein. The images speak for themselves, if you want to take a breath with them. Um, you can feel the emotion in these women's faces. Uh, but there's a powerful story behind the sculptures. Sousa Lowenstein is an artist whose son, Alexander, was murdered along with 258 other people after a terrorist attack on Pan Am Flight 103. After sitting with her own grief, she invited the loved ones of the victims to pose for her, and that's what we're seeing here. Her idea was to capture the moment when they first heard the awful news of the death of their loved ones. And that's what's pictured, the different positions that they assumed when they first heard some of the worst news of their lives. And she was able to create 75 of these sculptures and place them all together, which is insane. And what I love about it is that it invites grief into the room versus trying to usher it out of our lives. It is in your face that something terrible happened. And the description on her website describes her sculptures as being larger than life-size. She made um, an intentional decision to not make them at our height, but bigger, so that we couldn't run from the reality of this pain. And to sit with a story like this one is heavy which is fitting because that's where the word grief comes from, the Latin word gravis, meaning heavy. But another thing I love about this piece is that it shows us that even something as common as grief that affects all of us does not affect us all in the same way. Grief is shaped by our personalities, by our temperaments, by gender, by culture, by religion. Um, and this, does a, this piece does a powerful job of illustrating the different ways in which we grieve. Physically, we can see how some bodies collapse, some bodies hide, others have their hands up, fists raised, not in that picture. Um, and then something I noticed was the fact that no men were represented in this piece. The call was open to everybody, but the only people who volunteered to pose for Sousa were women. That's very telling of our society. We know that men are expected to hold it together, compartmentalize their grief while it's more acceptable for women to be vulnerable, more commonly labeled as emotional. Um, and my full-time job is as a therapist, and the amount of men who have told me that they were taught as children that they were not allowed to cry, that they had to be okay and put together in the midst of some of the most tragic moments of their lives, um, and so it's no surprise, actually, that only women came um, to Sousa. And depending on the culture, these emotional expectations that we have on men, on women, become even more restrictive. And we see the same spectrum when we look at the religious or spiritual responses to loss. Some of us look to God for comfort. Some of us scream at the sky, asking how a loving God could do this. Cesar Vallejo puts it like this. There are blows in life so hard, blows as if from something like God's hate. I first read this and it felt like a blow to my own face. Caesar, chill. That is too much. Um, but if I'm being honest, in almost every moment of my life, I've questioned God's goodness. Every moment of grief of my life, not every moment. Um, and I want to acknowledge my privilege here as I preach. I've never really experienced the loss of a loved one in my adulthood. 
I've never known the heartache of Martha or Mary or the women in these sculptures. But like many of you in this room, I would say all of us, I know what it is to feel like I've lost hope, to lose faith. I've worked in trauma services for close to five years now, and you don't do that work without becoming traumatized yourself. So when I say losing hope, I have lost a sense of safety that affects the way I approach my relationship, that affects the way that I go outside, that affects the way that I see people on the train. I have lost an ability to cry, which my community group knows well, because I have to sit with people who can't see me cry because it's their time. And that's affected the way that I've processed all of my emotions, not only when I'm in the therapist chair. And there have been times when I have equated these losses in my life to being a result of God's hate. And even as I stand here preaching, knowing that God is good, knowing that he is a good, good father, I love that song, by the way, I can feel that there's a part of me that still wonders and is still doubting. God, why? Where do you find yourself on the spectrum of grief? Do you hide your grief? Does grief lead to an all-consuming anger in your life? Do you also raise your fist to the sky and ask God, why do you hate me? I promise we're not going to sit in this grief forever um, without getting to a place of hope, but one of the main problems that we're seeing and that is talked about in this book is that we don't pay attention in moments of grief. We as a church need to normalize that grief exists and grief is hard. Pete Scazzaro actually posits that paying attention is one of the five phases of biblical grieving. He writes, when we do not process before God the very feelings that make us human, such as fear or sadness or anger, we leak which doesn't sound pretty. Our churches are filled with leaking Christians who have not treated their emotions as a discipleship issue. Grieving is not possible without paying attention to our anger and sadness. We diminish our humanity when we ignore our grief. We tell parts of ourselves that they are not worthy to be seen and to be known. And maybe you're thinking like I was when I started embarking on this journey, well, I've never lost anyone I've loved. How is this going to apply to me? Grief is not reserved for the loss of loved ones. We grieve when we lose relationships that have brought us comfort. We grieve when we lose jobs that have brought us stability. When we lose a sense of safety after experiencing trauma. And when we lose normalcy due to a whole pandemic. Everyone in this room has grieved. And so we find the story of Lazarus, two women, grieving the death of their brother. I can't imagine that pain and that devastation. Verses 20 to 23 read, So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Martha is the busybody of the Bible. I relate to her so much. She is the woman who opens up her home to Jesus before this and becomes consumed with anxiety. I gotta cook, I gotta clean, I gotta make sure everything's ready for the master. Um, 
And then meanwhile, her sister Mary is chilling at Jesus' feet to Martha's annoyance. Martha's trying to get things done. Mary's just kind of hanging out with Jesus. She's the typical type A personality who focuses on what needs to be done and she values order. So it makes sense for her for in this moment of grief to go out and meet Jesus, be the welcoming one, be a good hostess. But she just lost her brother. The Bible does not describe her as weeping as we later see Mary do. In fact, she appears quite logical telling Jesus the facts. If you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. And even when Jesus tells of the miracle he's about to perform, she answers with more logic and what I hope is a little bit of sass too. Yeah, Jesus, I know the deal. He will rise again, but that's not the reality now. Martha has the signs of the leaker that we just read about. Pushing down her anger and her sadness to be the good hostess and follower of Christ. She just lost her brother and instead is busying herself with attending to Jesus. Someone who could have prevented this death. And yet, this is such a human response to want things to be okay so desperately that we fake it until we make it. Mary, on the other hand, is consumed with sadness. Mary is known as the lover of Jesus' presence. At the beginning of this chapter, they give her a whole introduction, describing her as the woman who anointed the Lord. And yet we see that when the news of Jesus' arrival reaches her home, she remains seated. Another translation states, but Mary sat still in the house. That was so confusing to me. I'm like, Mary, didn't you just wash Jesus' feet with your hair? Jesus is here, your hope, your love, and you just sat still at home. It makes me think of those expressions and postures in the dark elegy. Mary is the typical image of grief, paralyzed, depressed, too consumed to realize that Jesus is near. And what I love about this passage is that it's Mary who deeply moved Jesus. Verse 32, now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, just like Martha did, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Lord, if you had been here. Lord, where were you? Lord, why didn't you do anything? Mary's question still reigns true today. And we don't see Jesus rebuke Mary here. We don't see her accuse her of little faith. Instead, Jesus is moved and is troubled with this such a comfort to me who has asked God those same questions. Where were you when this child was traumatized? Where were you when I was going through it? Why weren't you with me? The word used here for deeply moved, I am not going to attempt to pronounce. That is the word. And it means enraged in snorts like an angry horse. If y'all thought Jesus did not get real, he snorts like an angry horse, guys. Snort with rage. And then the word for troubled is terrasso, which means to put in motion, to set in motion what needs to remain still, to trouble, on and on. You guys can read that on your own. Um, 
And so the first question I ask for, for Jesus is, what made you so angry? Why are you snorting like an angry horse? That's, that's some real stuff. I know it's funny. I see Lizzie laughing in the front. Um, but it's real. Like that's, that's how provoked he was to fury, right? That he didn't care what was around him. He was going to make noises. Um, so Jesus, what made you so angry? If we look closely at that definition, Tarasso, we see the word indignation implying that Jesus is angered by something unfair or unjust that has occurred. I can't answer what exactly the injustice was that he was angry about, but I can hypothesize. Jesus perhaps was angered by the death that he had not yet conquered on the cross. Maybe Jesus was angered that death was being given more power than it should have been. Maybe he was frustrated with Mary, still didn't understand that he was greater than death. Or he could have been angered by a world so filled with suffering that was not part of its original design. While I might not know the source of his indignation, Jesus' actions reveal that grief and injustice are interconnected. There is something about grief that mourns the unfairness of the present situation. When we've experienced trauma, we grieve the injustice of crime and abuse. When we experience a loss of a loved one, we grieve the unfairness of someone being taken away way too soon. When we experience heartache, we grieve the maltreatment from the other person. Jesus is angered and moved by the things that cause us grief and that cause us pain. He is not a removed God that pats us on our backs saying, they're there, focus on the bright side, I am risen. He weeps with us. The shortest verse in the Bible is packed with power. It reveals something so incredibly beautiful about divine nature. Jesus mourns with us. He's angered by injustice. He's angered by the injustice that we experience here on this earth, and he's moved to action. Verse 41 says, So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. In this moment, Jesus is not only resurrecting Lazarus, but he's resurrecting a hope that was being questioned and diminished at the perceived absence of Jesus at the moment of Lazarus's death. Verse 36 says, so the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? I don't know who else can identify with the people in verse 37. I know I can. God, couldn't you just have kept that from happening? What was the purpose? Jesus does not respond to these comments, but instead he lets his actions speak. I want to invite us to consider that God's silence in our lives may be him getting ready to move on our behalf. If you hear anything today, let it be that God desires to meet you in your grief. 
He desires to weep with you and resurrect that hope that tragedy has struck down. Jesus shows the crowd that not only is he the man who opens the eyes of the blind man, but he is the one who raises them from the dead. And it's worth noting here that the resurrection of Lazarus is a foreshadowing of how God solves the problem of our grieving world with resurrection life. That's the gospel. That's the gospel solution. Grief is real. Loss is real. Hardship is real. And Jesus came for that reason. God came to die. In fact, our God knows loss. He's not a stranger to it. He gave up his son for us. I'm sure y'all have heard this before. The gospel is not new. And sadly, I'm sure that this life-changing gospel has been used to minimize your grief and has been used to minimize your trauma. And so I feel like it's important to add to the narrative that Jesus came to address the injustices of this broken world, and he came to resurrect our hope. And I want to stress that it isn't a dehumanizing type of hope that fails to acknowledge the parts of us that are still filled with devastation and pain. It's the type of hope that processes the feelings before they leak. The type of hope that snorts like an angry horse at the things that are just not fair, that weeps with us because it knows the importance of sitting in discomfort. At the end of the story, Jesus says, unbind him and let him go. That wasn't the last one, my bad. Um, I don't know how many Pentecostals are in the room. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Brandon. <laughs> but that phrase, unbind, is like our bat signal. <laughs> Form the prayer circle. Who I got to lay my hands on? Who am I going to pray for? Let's loosen and bind in this place today. Um, so I, my, my ears went up when I heard that phrase that Jesus used. And that's the, that's the end of the story. That's how it ends. Um, and so there's this understanding that something needs to be released. Not only for Lazarus, but for us. I believe God is calling us to release something today. But this call is gentle, opposite of what I just described. We are not shoving you into a prayer circle, I promise. This man was dead for four days. He stinks, literally, it says it in the Bible. His muscles are probably stiff. He hasn't seen the light of day, he's been in a cave. Which tells me that Jesus not only isn't afraid of letting things take their time, even if it does mean getting a little smelly. But he also was not expecting this unbinding process to be rushed, to be speedy. Jesus honors the time it might take us to release and to let go. You might not be ready to sit with your grief today. I'm here to tell you that you get to be angry at the injustice. You deserve your time to weep. But what I hope this story teaches us all today is that we can trust in the God of resurrected hope and release. He is not a stranger to loss and to pain. In fact, he came down to this earth to create a path that would ultimately end in no more loss and no more pain. And yet he doesn't rush us to consider the greatness of heaven. He's bold enough to sit and weep and be angry with his children, not at his children. So to end, 
I want to pray this adapted prayer that Pete Scazzaro ends his grief and loss chapter with. Feel free to close your eyes. Assume whatever posture feels more comfortable for you. Grab a drink of water. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, when I think about my losses, it can feel that I have no skin to protect me. I feel raw, scraped to the bone. I don't know why you have allowed such pain. I must admit that I struggle to pay attention and see something new being birthed out of the old. Lord, grant me the courage to feel, to pay attention, and then to wait on you. Lord, help me release. Release my doubts. Release my pain. Release the narrative in which you are absent and unloving. Help me to let go. You know that everything in me resists. Resists grief, resists change, resists letting you in. So I invite you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to make your home in me. Freely roam and fill every empty space of my life. And may the prayer of Job, someone who knows loss so well, be mine. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.